and welcome to the June Center for Medical Simulation Book Club. I'm here with Janice Palaganis, Roxanne Gardner, Robert Simon, and our technical host, James Lipshaw. Today we're going to be discussing a book I found somewhat electrifying. I guess that's sort of ironic because the book is called Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Do Less by Alex Sujung Kim Pang, and I'm just going to call him Alex Pang from now on. And I got introduced to this book via my meditation app, Calm, which had a masterclass with Alex Pang on it. And I just thought the ideas were so intriguing, especially for a group of very hardworking and overachieving people to think a little bit about how we should rest. So I think I can give a flavor for this book by reading a short quote. Here's what Alex Pang says. When rest goes from being something that perches in the leftover hours between work and sleep and house cleaning and child rearing and volunteering and commuting and so on, infinitum, to being something that you claim for yourself, it becomes more valuable and tangible. Deliberate rest is not a negative space defined by the absence of work or something we hope to get sometime. It is something positive, something worth cultivating in its own right. So the central argument of the book Rest is that rest and work are partners. Rest and work are complements. Rest and work are two sides of a creative and meaningful life. And so I'm really looking forward to discussing how do you make this work in a crazy, busy world of normalized overwork. The things I thought we could maybe talk about today are the four areas that he talks about as being crucial to rest. One is work and rest are partners. The second is rest, surprisingly, is not passive. It is active, the kind of rest he's talking about. Deliberate rest takes skill. And then lastly, deliberate rest stimulates and sustains creativity. So that's kind of our preview of the terrain we're going to talk about. And I'd love to get some reactions from the group, including what you might want to talk about. I like I like talking about those four areas because I think what I would like to talk about falls into the four areas. Yeah, well, the subtitle of the book, you know, why you get more done when you work less was talking to somebody about this and they said, yeah, and you also get more done when you work more. So, <laughs> <laughs> Roxanne, any, uh, any reactions from you? I certainly have come on to the need for rest and have more recently sort of unplugged or tried to unplug on the weekends. And I find that 
when I do that, I'm, I just feel more energetic on Monday. But, you know, I think I still may need some pointers on deliberate rest, because even though I unplug doesn't necessarily mean I'm doing the same kind of rest that he means in his book. When we started talking about this book group conversation, Janice brought up the good idea that it's sometimes important to make room for conflict and disagreement as we try to both keep the conversation spicy and uh, learn more about it. And I'm just wondering if there are any other areas where uh, we find things hard or where there might be some conflictual feelings about what we're talking about. So Robert's brought up, yeah, I love the idea of rest, but like when the heck do you fit it in? Roxanne sort of validating that she struggles with that a little bit. As you all know me, I gravitate towards things that what are the rules? How do we conduct ourselves and what works and what doesn't work? And you know, one thing I heard recently that really resonated for me was it goes something like I'm better at keeping promises to others than I am the promises I make to myself. So if I'm writing something and I'm working with others, I owe them what I'm supposed to do. And I feel a strong pull to do that. So there's, you know, some social pressure, but it's part of the things that I value. It was probably about a year ago, I don't know, six months ago, whenever, taking a page from what Roxanne just said, I uh, have just really tried not to get into my email on the weekends. When I what I experienced was, oh yeah, that's good, you know, from my colleagues, and then a sense of disappointment from time to time that I hadn't read something that was important to them, and maybe it would have been good had I read it, but I didn't. So this sort of this social pressure that comes, like you know, you're resting, like really, you know, I'm working hard and you're not, uh, you're not really measuring up to my expectations. I would say something similar, you know, about going to take a nap during the day. I'm working and you're just sleeping. And so I think it has to do with some, there's some kind of social contract that plays into that. Yeah. I think just to frame up what you're raising here, Robert, there are some details that Alex Pang covers around what rest is made up of, and we can come back to that. But really where we've gone is the social contract, for example, among us here in our small organization. But he also talks about the broader organizational norms throughout modern professional life, which is that if you're not insanely busy and not sleeping too little and not apparently juggling too much, you can't really be a serious professional. So that's weighing. But I think what you're proposing here is something that aligns with the work of Leslie Perlow uh, many years ago from Harvard Medical School, who looked at the importance of uninterrupted time at work and agreeing with each other that we'll have essentially two or three hours of quiet time where we don't come in and talk to each other. And you're raising a similar challenge. I'll just say, for for example, the Center for Medical Simulation. As I was reading this book and I was asking myself, hey, if we took this really seriously, what does this mean? And I'll just go to the most extreme part of what you're talking about in my view, Robert, which is if you take seriously the work on rest, having a fallow period, having downtime where you're literally napping increases your overall productivity. So an implication of what we're discussing is that organizations should recognize that some period of rest, including napping, could be considered a legitimate and valuable part of work. Whoa, I mean, that totally goes against, hey, you're sleeping on the job. That really resonates for me because I try to work at home one day a week. Invariably, I rest for half an hour every time I do that. Mm -hmm. And I feel so much better for it. That's so easily accomplished at home and not 
when I'm in the office. And So this really reminds me of, so you all know I'm a CrossFitter and I've really been working on lifting. And one of the things in lifting that's important to strengthening and performance is something that we call deloading, meaning you lift to your maximum weight and then you have to take a rest either within that week or within that month. When we lift, the the hardest part about the concept of deloading is actually taking that rest. So much so that when people join the lifting program, our expert lifters tell us that if you're going to join this program, when we say you have to rest, you have to rest because people will still go in. And I think it's it's part of how we've socialized ourselves and what we see to be productive. And so for me, when I don't work out on in one day, I feel lazy. And it could be the same thing for you, Robert. It's like, you just can't do that because you've got this anxiety of feeling lazy or unproductive. Um, and that, And the same thing goes with lifting as well. Now, what I think is interesting is there's this whole controversy around deloading for you know, the non-professional athlete, which is that your body's complex. And some people feel like you should go with how your body feels that day in that moment. And knowing yourself in that way is the most crucial point in terms of your performance. So I wonder, what do you guys think about that? Is that the better approach rather than scheduling deliberate rest, really getting to know when you feel like you need a rest and when you don't? So Rox, I noticed that our fellow QJ has joined the call. Would you mind just introducing him so people know who else is on here? Yes, uh, uh, we have a fellow who is with us for six months from Singapore, and his name is Kian Jung Tong. He goes by the initials of QJ for short. Okay, Roxanne, over to you about the um, question of deloading, resting, schedule it, make it intuitive, and do it when you want. What are your your reactions to that? Well, so I think where I'm from on this topic is the cultural aspects of sort of getting back to what Robert said about, you know, what are the, the rules for the organization, so to speak. And it reminded me, we, we went to Google, the Google offices in Cambridge, and I noticed that they had some rest areas specifically available to employees to be able to go to anytime that they felt like they needed a rest. Whether you feel like you need to schedule it so that you get to it and do it, or you feel like you need to deload when your body tells you it's time to deload, I think it doesn't matter to me so much as if it's okay and an acceptable thing to do within our organization. I should never feel guilty about being seen as not working and lazy if he feels like he just needs to, to rest. So I think additionally, Roxanne, I, I think additionally complex for our organization is that people are traveling all over the place and everybody's on different schedules and different time zones. And I, I just, due to my busy kid life as well, I work a lot late at night and on the weekends, <laughs> whereas many other people are not. And so we all kind of rest at different times and it does make it just an additional sense of pressure of just being on all the time. I, I wanted to comment on what you what you just said, Janice, and something that was said before, and that is you had mentioned that you get to your maximum weight and then mm-hmm. you take a rest. How uh-huh. are you supposed to know what the maximum weight is? You know, we can see. always do more. We can always get stronger. We can always be more productive. 
Yeah, you know, well, it's interesting. So it's uh, deloading is based on the concept of three phases. So it's it's the training, which you do try to get to your maximum. And then you have to have a recovery. And the recovery actually can can launch you into what they call super compensation. That if you go through the recovery, you've rested enough to perform even better than what you were training. And so maybe it's not the max, but I think it's it's kind of tied into what Jenny was saying, that if you rest, it'll propel you to do even more creative things, to be more productive. And, and just having done competitions, I, and this is all muscular and physical and different, and there is you know mental component as well. I have done this deloading and it really works like things that I never knew I could weights that I could lift or things that I could do. I, I never thought I could. And I think that rest in between was essential. So let me let me uh, propose an alternate approach to the intuitive one about like wait and see, take a rest when you need it and so on, uh, partially based on Alex Pang's research behind the book. So on the chapter on napping, um, I'm going to just read two quotes from here. So one is, why do naps do you good? Most obvious benefit of napping is that it increases alertness and decreases fatigue. A short nap of around 20 minutes boosts your ability to concentrate by giving your body a chance to restore depleted energy. But regular naps, the habit, not just a single nap, have other benefits. And he talks about memory and rejuvenation and all those things. But one of the things that I think is really important, especially in the light of the amount of burnout that we're all either experiencing ourselves or other colleagues of ours are experiencing or we're reading about, especially in the healthcare domain, is that naps also help workers avoid mistakes and bad behavior. So Jennifer Goldschmidt, a graduate student at University of Michigan, found that naps improve emotional regulation and self-control. I'm thinking that part of this is we're actually not very good estimators of our need for rest or deloading or whatever we call it, and that we really need to have a discipline of building it in. I personally have this little uh, mantra for myself, which is there's always too much work to work out. Uh, one of my active rest strategies is doing sports. And if I decide whether to do sports or not, depending on how much work I have that day, I will never do it. I want to put that out to you guys in terms of, let's say that we had an organizational norm that we really should be, you know, mindfully resting, whether it's signing off of email, whether it's unplugging from our devices and doing some kind of deliberate rest or napping. And there's a lot of other things that we should get to and talk about that. It's a discipline. It's not a optional thing. What you said, Jenny, makes sense. Like disciplining yourself, you know, looking for some, a, a flow of work, rest and working to capacity and then backing off. And what Roxanne said about the Google offices where the naps are, you know, they actually have it structured in, it's in the furniture. So really we're talking about barriers and I'm doing the same thing. It strikes me that just talking about this helps us understand what our shared values are in this. You know, that's a good social thing to do. You don't realize some kind of mutual commitment. But now I'm thinking, you know, I even was thinking about why do we why are we meeting all all the time is because, you know, we're all over the place, you know, like someone's traveling or they're teaching or they're whatever it is. Somehow I'm now led to be thinking about 
the clinicians who may well be listening to this and how much more difficult that is because the demands, they're even in less control of the demands that come their way than we are or anybody is in an office situation. I'm not sure we're going to tackle claiming control in a large hospital setting, though I think maybe we could circle back to that later or clinic setting. But I want to make sure that we touch on a couple other important themes that Alex Pang brought up. So one of the themes was that rest is active. So we've been talking a bit about napping and paradoxically napping is actually fairly active because as Shakespeare said, uh, sleep knits the raveled sleeve of care. So there's stuff happening in our brain while we're napping. But he also talks about what he calls deep play. And so I'd like to shift gears and talk a little bit about deep play with all of you. So in that part of the book, he introduces the idea of things like chess, rock climbing, knitting, essentially what in the olden days we might have called hobbies as a really, really important way for our brains to relax from the political or managerial, or dare I say, clinical demands of everyday life, but still be doing problem solving in a different way. And I thought this was very paradoxical, that apparently this deep play is so generative for so many people. And so I was just wondering, you know, what is your individual experiences of deep play or, or your thoughts on deep play generally? So my um, exercise regimen involves walking. And I used to uh, walk briskly, listening to podcasts or whatnot, and I found myself the last uh, half year or so walking and not listening. So I let my mind wander because you know walking, you know, it's not that challenging. It's fabulous. I think of stuff while I'm walking, and I find it really a creative process. So Robert, if I could just jump in there for a second, building on what you're saying. So one of the uh, chapters in the book is called Walk. Huh? And Alex Pang talks a lot about two things there. So says, I walked myself into my best thoughts, declared the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. So I think we can all he agree. Took that so, from, he, he took that quote from me. Exactly. So I think we can all agree <laughs> that Robert Simon and Soren Kierkegaard are on par with each other. Thank you. And um, I'll just share a personal story, which is for many years, Somebody named Clifford Geertz, who was one of the giants of uh, this century's sociology theory, uh, rented the house next to us in Vermont every summer. And the grass down by the lake, right in front of his house, by the end of the four weeks that he rented the house, was completely worn down because he walked back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for several hours every day, kind of thinking about his books or whatever. And what Alex Pang talks about is there's this thing called the default mode network, the DMN, which is a kind of process a structure in our brain that sort of lets us have our minds wander and things happen. And so I'm thinking, and he's thinking that some of that happens while walking. So what do you guys think about that relaxed brain strategy or, or process, not necessarily strategy? Um, I much prefer the walking as opposed to napping. I've always been a terrible napper. Now that, especially with the weather being better, I'm, I'm going to take my own walk around the Navy Yard because there's just so many beautiful sceneries to look at. And I think that would help me refresh. I think that's the key word. I think it's the refreshing part of 
the deep play. I mean, any of these activities, whether it's exercise, walking, to an extent, napping. But when I think of deep play, I think of, for me, it's playing the piano. It just brings you to a different space. If there is judgment, it's not, it's not going to harm you <laughs> in any way. And so, therefore, it feels like play. And there's something to that that allows you to deload, de-stress, whatever, defragment as you do the things that you like to do in that different space in a way where you're refreshed to revisit that you see more of an issue or problematic that does require a lot more energy and high risk. So let me uh, build on that, uh, Janice, with the work of uh, Alex Pang. So he says, uh, deep play is mentally absorbing, psychologically engaging, and creates a living connection to many of the things that we struggle with in our main profession but allows us to do it in a way with lower stakes and lower risk. And he takes the example of another hobby I know you have, Janice, which is Winston Churchill and painting. The quotes around Winston Churchill's painting are almost identical to some of the things you just said, which is Churchill writes that his activities are highly visible. Everybody can see what he's painting. Mm -hmm. Uh, If he makes a mistake, he himself can see it and adjust it but that the stakes are completely different than running the British government during the Second World War. And so there's something about the mastery, the trying, the failing, and yet having the opportunity to learn with joy from those failures that to me seems so important in deep play. I'm so glad you reread that, Jenny, because as you read it, as you know, uh, Dan and I went to an improvisation workshop this past weekend, and it was so fun. I would consider it deep play. I mean, I was sweating on stage. It was really uncomfortable and difficult for me. And so to me, it was deep play, enjoyable and, and low risk, yet I was still really uncomfortable doing it. And I have to say that yesterday I went to a party with my family, and the experience with improv allowed me to watch people's behavior a little more because it it added to the humanity of, uh, it, it just gives you a new perspective on humanity and human behavior. And so that part is part of what we do is looking at social behavior. It's interesting because that was deep play. And I feel like I've taken what's relevant to me from that. And it's the application of the deep play, what you're learning in those moments, um, or kind of processing in those moments that can then propel you to improvement in your work life. Great. So just for uh, all of us and our listeners, I want to clarify because we blended them together a little bit. There are activities that are allow us to have our minds wander and synthesize, such as walking, and that allows the default mode network to come into play and and do some work in the background. I loved your comment about defragmenting, Janice, and Robert, this connects to the sort of fertile things that happen for you while you're walking. Then separately, a different process is deep play, which I think links more closely, for example, to Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's concept of flow. But that's where we are trying to master something. We're problem solving at a different kind of level of stakes. Anyway, just interested in if anybody else has any deep play 
or kind of mind-wandering experiences they'd like to talk about? So there are, there are two premises here. One is whether resting is conducted on a solitary basis or on a social setting. And for me, um, my default state is during running, I, I'm not concentrating on anything in particular. And that allows the mind to wander. On the other hand, if you're talking about things like chess or having some social setting where your mind is actively triggered, I wonder how much resting is there. And after the event, you may come away even more mentally fatigued rather than rested. QJ, um, I think that's such a great point, and I'm going to refer to the structure of Alex Pang's argument to maybe address what you're bringing up, which is what's rest, what's tiring, what's refreshing. So he divides the group book into a couple different, few different sections, and one is about stimulating creativity. In that section, he talks about concentrated periods of work. Thomas Mann, who wrote Every Morning from 8 a.m. to noon, on such books as The Magic Mountain, having an early morning routine. Most of the many creative people, many very productive people work early in the morning. Napping, stopping, which I thought was fascinating. He talks about the importance of stimulating creativity by, if you're uh, Ernest Hemingway, stopping in the middle of a sentence, not when you've finished a section so that you can kind of keep going and be creative and then sleep or napping as a really, really important part of knitting the raveled sleeve of care, getting our brains back to baseline. The second piece is sustaining creativity, which is things like giving ourselves time to recover, as Janice was talking about with deloading, like you've worked really hard, now you need to take a little rest time. Exercise and deep play, also all help us sustain creativity. So it's a kind of active rest, I think, QJ, related to your question, where you might have a certain kind of fatigue, but it's not the same kind of fatigue you might have after, after a busy shift um, in the operating room. And then the last thing he talks about in sustaining creativity is taking sabbaticals. And interestingly, he talks about like a one-week sabbatical, a one-month sabbatical, one year, you know, can be different lengths. But unplugging and taking time off from your usual activities. So I think stimulation is an important part of rest, but it's a different kind of rest. So guys, I'm thinking that uh, we'll move toward wrapping up our conversation here. I'd like to uh, kind of check in with you all and uh, kind of pose a challenge. A number of us work at the Center for Medical Simulation. Uh, QJ is here with us for six months. What kinds of things do you think we should consider individually uh, to try to build in some of this, these ideas for ourselves? And or since you happen to have the um, executive director on the line with you here and myself, what do you think our organization should be considering? I think all of us need to be a little bit more, you know, we really need to take rest. It's a positive act. As I, I think, you know, he, he says so well to claim it and use it. Also think it's important to have some kind of social contract that the people around us uh, understand that and support it. The third thing, maybe an extension of the second thing, is um, I think the environment needs to sanction it. There are some visible manifestations of how rest 
<laughs> or active uh, rest is important. So as Roxanne was saying, taking a walk during the day, like that's a good thing to do. And noting that manifestation at work is, I think, important. Yeah. So I'm hearing there's things that we each individually, like we have to claim it, we have to take it, we have to actively make it part of our daily life, uh, not just hope that it will happen. But also there are social and organizational ways that we can make it more normal, more accepted. Yeah, where we can we can sanction it as part of our work. Like if you ever say to me, Jenny, if you ever say to me, yeah, let's have a meet, but let's walk. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. I'm just wondering how we would do something like that on the days that we're teaching our courses that are seven hours long, mm. whether they be clinical or whether they be the instructor courses, they're very long days. And building in a break that specifically is to be translated as a rest time. I think I can see it easily for the instructor courses because I know there are breaks throughout that course of the day, but I'm trying to envision how would, how I would make that happen in our clinical courses. You know, just thinking of the the simulation as a teaching tool course, the comprehensive course, over time, the way I'm guessing I'm just attributing here, Robert and Jenny, where we've built in the rest are key parts of the course. Like we have in terms, when I think of rest within courses, I'm thinking socializing at lunch, having our uh, cocktail uh, reception and having our dinner. Those are, and they're perfectly structured in at times when the participants, just because we know how the flow of the course is, they need that. And it kind of flows into the story of, of the learning process. Yes. And the kind of thing that like many of us got to experience in kindergarten, which is we all rolled out our mats and took a little 20 minute nap on the floor. Imagine building in a little formalized rest time, meditation, walk, you know, it could be optional, it could be together. Uh, certainly the research on integration of new learning would support that rocks even for our clinical courses. I mean, I think if we took a more a a highly principled stand, like guys, the research is this is a demanding day, and it's a really good idea for you to take a ten minute walking break. We can't stop you from checking your email, but what we recommend is let's all go for a walk. You know, that could be very interesting. And um, uh, Damian Shield uh, just told me that he came back from our. Uh, advanced course led by Nacho Del Moral and Jose Maestre in Spain, uh, in Spanish, and they created a little Zen room, quote unquote, where people could go and take a quiet time out during this very demanding course. And Damien said it was very heavily used. So, so folks, we're coming to the end of our time. I'd just like to see if anybody has any last words. I'm really going to take to heart this idea of how I would build in rest. In, or some kind of rest-related activity in any one of those categories you described, Jenny, into my day. And I think my biggest challenge is how I can build it into our clinical courses. And I'm thinking one really golden opportunity is the fact that we usually have a working lunch. And so we're busy debriefing while we're eating. And some of it is just because we want to keep going and keep going, keep going and get the course done so people can get out on time. So that's my commitment 
enjoy each other's company and eat and not try to cram in more debriefing. First of all, Jenny, I want to thank you for contextualizing so many of the comments that have been made. I think it helps quite a bit. So thanks for that. For myself, when we have, when I'm teaching an instructor course, they are really long days. You should have lunch with the our participants because it is a time when we get to have some conversation with them that's, you know, about them or less formal or enjoyable. And they, all these pieces are enjoyable. But as I think we've spoken, you know, so much of the restorative process has to do with letting your mind wander, letting it think thoughts that it doesn't have to think. Next week, I'm going to be teaching an advanced course, and they're really long days. So I looked at the schedule, and I'm scheduled for every period of every day. You know, I've got to figure something out. I think, you know, trying to seize the time somehow is going to be important. Okay, that is a wrap. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining this discussion. I'm really delighted that we had a chance to talk about Alex Pang's book, Rest why you get more done when you work less. Really enjoyed my time with my colleagues, Janice Palaganis, Roxanne Gardner, UJ Tong, Robert Simon, and James. Thank you so much for your technical hosting behind the scenes, James Lipshaw. Jenny, thank you for the book and thanks for modeling. (laughs) Bye everybody. The CMS Book Club is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about the Center for Medical Simulation and sign up for our simulation instructor training at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.